Well, it is great to welcome uh, you hearty few out on, on this Sunday morning uh, to, to worship God and to think about His Word together. Before, before I actually start the sermon, so I don't want this to count as part of the sermon, I, I wanted to, um, I, and I point to them because they're, they're like the timers, um, I, I wanted to just tell you a, a quick little story about why I think it's a good idea that, that on a crazy, snowy, icy Sunday like this, we still bothered to, to gather together. I, you know, I, I was online and I was checking um, all sorts of chor- churches across the city, and of course, everyone is canceled, right? And, and this is one of the benefits, I must say, to living close to your, your local church, right? The, the, the pastor lives within walking distance. Uh, I, presumably, almost all of you all, not quite all, all of you, but a lot of you live within walking distance. So there's, there's one of the benefits to living within walking distance of, of your church. But um, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, and I don't want to claim this for our service this morning, but you really never know what's going to happen when God's people faithfully gather together despite whatever the, the, the situation is. So um, uh, Charles Spurgeon, the famous uh, British preacher who is known in uh, the, the second half of the 19th century as, as probably the greatest preacher and evangelist uh, in the English-speaking world, he tells the story of his own conversion, and it has everything to do with a day just like today. He had grown up in a Christian home, but was not a Christian. But he was real, under real conviction of sin, and he labored under that conviction of sin for years, but, just, but, but knew no forgiveness, knew no relief, until he says, one Sunday morning in January 1850, a snowstorm forced him to cut his intended journey to his church short. He he couldn't make it to his church. And so he turned into a primitive Methodist chapel in Colchester. And this is what he says. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. (laughs) The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. When he had managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. And then he looked up at me sitting there under the gallery, that is under the balcony. Spurgeon was a Baptist, so of course he sat in the back. And I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart. He said, young man, you look very miserable. (laughs) Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. And I saw at once the way of salvation. I'd been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Charles Spurgeon converted, who would go on and be used of God to bring many, many, many to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because a faithful deacon showed up at a primitive Methodist church on a snowy day when nobody else could get there and preached the only thing he knew. Look to Jesus Christ. So who knows what God might do with us this morning? Who knows? All right. That's, that's just for showing up on a snowy Sunday. 
Uh, I think you can always tell when true love is at work. Not, not just casual love, but like, like true love. And I, and I don't even mean really just romantic love here. I mean, think about the love that people have for their sports teams. You know when true love is at work. Fans, mere fans, buy season tickets, and, you know, they'll buy some team gear to wear to the game. Fanatics, like true lovers of the team, they dye their hair and paint their faces for the game, and team attire is entirely appropriate for their children's wedding. Or think about computer users. We all buy and use computers all the time. And if you're like me, you have been through many different brands. You switch based on whatever the latest report you know, is about, about which computer seems to be working the best. And then there are Apple lovers. More like, more like groupies, you know? Except they're following a machine, not a band. And then, of course, there's marriage. We get to romantic love. I'm sure you've all noticed that over time, a married couple that's really in love begins to look like each other. Have you noticed this? Old married couples that are deeply in love, they kind of look like each other. This is, I think, what love does. True love affects you. It, it marks you out. It, it marks you out as different from the non-lover. It marks you out as, as different from just the casual friend or the casual fans, fan. And, and I think that's as true of God as it is sports teams or, or romantic relationships. This winter, we have been thinking about authentic Christianity. What, what is authentic Christianity and, and what is an authentic Christian? And we've been using... John's, the Apostle John's first letter that he wrote toward the end of the first century. And in our text this morning, John points out that you can tell a true follower of God, a, a true lover of God, because that love has affected them. It's, it's marked them out. A true lover of God looks like God. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. If you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided in the pews there, it's page 1,899. 1,899. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read the first six verses, and you'll be helped if you just keep your Bibles open, because I'm going to be referring to these just these few short verses again and again throughout our time together this morning. 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. All right, so far in John's letter, he has explained what his message is all about, that his message is a message about Jesus. That's really what Christianity is all about. It's a message about Jesus. And then right there at the end of chapter 1, John uh, put up three false claims that false teachers were making about Christianity, and he rebutted each of them. Now, from, from chapter 2, verse 1, through to the end of the letter, John is going to work out three tests, three marks of the authentic Christian. He's going he's to introduce them, and then he's going to come back around and go over them again, and then he's going to come back around and go over those three marks yet again. And in our verses this morning, he introduces the first test, the first mark of an authentic Christian, and it is the test of obedience, the test of obedience. Not obedience just to a set of rules, uh, like, like, like the Ten Commandments or whatever. No, it's, it's obedience to a person. If I could sum up 
really the point of these six verses is just a sentence or so. I'd, I'd, I'd encapsulate it this way. People who've been forgiven by Jesus look like Jesus. People who've been forgiven by Jesus look like Jesus. And love is what does it. Love is what does it. Now, John works this idea out in two steps that we're going to just walk through. First, step one, verses one to two, the love of God changes God. The love of God changes God. And then second, verses three to six, the love of God changes us. The love of God changes us. Now, as we look at this, the question that I want you to kind of have in the back, there are questions I want you to have in the back of your head are, who do you look like? Who do you love? Who do you look like? Who do you love? All right, first, the love of God changes God. And I put that as provocatively as I know how. We'll, I'll, I'll explain that in just, in just a minute. Look, look there at, at verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, now right away, right as verse 1 opens, we can't help but notice John's love for the churches he's writing to. That's not actually what I'm going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the love of God. But I just want to note there, John clearly loves the people that he's writing to. Even though they're being lured by false teaching, John's not a scold. You know, he's, he's, he's not harsh with them. These are his children in the faith, and he is concern for them. And right, right there, a point I'm not going to develop at all, is a real lesson uh, for, for those of us that are elders or aspire to be elders in the local church. You know, the people that we shepherd are going to be lured into all sorts of false teaching. They are going to be tempted to all sorts of sin. And our attitude as elders must be that of love, the tender love. It's not always easy. Um, but, but that is what we are called to, to, to tenderly shepherd God's sheep. And since there's so few of you here, and since I can see all of the elders that are, that are present, um, l- l- let, me just, let me just say to, to the elders and, and, and those that have been nominated to be an elder and those of you that aspire to be an elder, this is something we've got to give ourselves to, right? We have to give ourselves to this attitude. I am sure that at this moment, as he's having to write this letter, there are feelings, and okay, this is speculation, but I am sure there are feelings of exasperation in John, right? I cannot believe you guys are falling for these stupid lies. But his response to them is, my dear children, right? My dear children. So as you pray for us as elders, pray that we will not be exasperated by the, the sin and the weakness of the sheep that we're called to, to shepherd. Pray that instead our hearts will be filled with love, with, with tender love for the sheep. That's a, uh, it's a good kind of self-interested prayer for you to pray, but it's a good, it's a good prayer for you to pray for your, for your elders because that's what we want to do because that's what changes us, right? That's how people respond to being led and cared for, not if they're scolded. Not, not if they're harangued, but if, if they're loved. Well, he's writing so that they won't fall into sin because he loves them. He, he wants them, though, to be assured that if they do fall into sin, all is not lost. You understand his concern, and, and he moves to that right away. But if anybody does sin, you, you know, now the reason this is a concern for John is because he's just told them in the previous verses, in the very opening of his letter, if you're really a Christian, then you're going to walk in the light, not the dark. That's what Christians do. Christians walk in the light, not the dark. Sin should not be the dominant characteristic of a Christian's life. He said there in chapter 1, verse 6, that that if it is, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we're we're liars. We're, we're, We're not Christians. And yet the reality is, and John's a good pastor, he knows this, the reality is that Christians sin. 
Christians commit sins all the time. And, and they continue to sin long after they became Christians. In fact, we will continue to sin until the Lord brings us home to glory. So rather than try to reassure ourselves by claiming to be something that we're not, that's what the false teachers were doing. They were saying, well, we don't sin anymore. Now, rather than trying to go that route and claim to be something that we're not, and rather than, than defining sin away, well, yeah, you know, but it's not, it's not that bad. What I do isn't really all that bad. Now, John reminds them and John reminds us of the love of God that forgives us through Jesus Christ. There at the end of verse one and throughout verse two, John points out three things about Jesus that we need to be reminded of, that we need to know. First, if you're a Christian, Jesus is your advocate. That that phrase there, one who speaks in our defense. It's a single word in the Greek. It's the word advocate or, or paraclete. Those of you that are, you know, grew up on the King James Version, you'll be familiar with that word, uh, the, the, the paraclete. Jesus is our paraclete, our advocate with the Father. Now, the reason so many Christians typically know that word is we're used to associating it as a, as a title for the Holy Spirit, because this is the very word that Jesus uses in John, uh, John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 16, to refer to the Holy Spirit. Jesus promises that he's going to send another counselor, another advocate to be with us. But, but of course, the Spirit is another advocate, another counselor, precisely because Jesus is the first one. Jesus is the first advocate. Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father. And John wants us to know that when we sin, we have an advocate there. We have Jesus who's standing there pleading our case, pleading on our behalf. In in many ways, if we want to think about what does it mean that that Jesus is an advocate and and the Spirit is the advocate, in in many ways, the Spirit is Jesus' advocate. The Spirit advocates for Jesus to the world. The Spirit testifies to the world that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is our advocate to the Father. He stands there next to the Father and pleads our case. That's the first thing that John wants us to note about Jesus. He speaks in our defense. He is our advocate. But second, John points out, Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus may be speaking on behalf of sinners, like you, like me, but he's not a sinner himself. In his divinity, as as God, Jesus is by definition righteous, righteous in his very being. And in his humanity, Jesus never once yielded to sin, not in thought, not in word, not in deed. Jesus is the righteous one. And it is that righteousness that enables Jesus to stand there at the right hand of the Father and be our advocate, to, to plead our case. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 puts it this way. The author says, such a high priest, referring to Jesus, such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. That's Hebrews 7, 26. You see what the the author is saying. He's he's shifted in in the book of Hebrews. He's not using the language of of advocacy. He's using the language of priesthood. Very similar ideas in this case. And and he's saying, look, those Old Testament priests, they had a problem. They were sinners themselves. They were priests in need of a priest. Not Jesus. Jesus is a holy priest, a holy advocate. He is able to walk into the holy of holies on his own merits, on his own rights, and plead our case. To, 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 to use a different image, one that maybe is more contemporary that we would understand, you know, it would never do to hire a lawyer to represent you in court if he had a warrant out for his own arrest, right? That, that just wouldn't work because as soon as he walks into the courtroom, the bailiff would arrest him and then where would your lawyer be, right? No, Jesus 
is that advocate who has nothing to fear, nothing to fear from God's justice, because he is the righteous one. And so he is able to speak on our behalf. But then there's a third thing that John points out about Jesus, and it really brings these first two points together, that Jesus is our advocate and he's the righteous one. And that's there in verse 2, that Jesus is, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Uh, Literally, we could translate, he is the one who propitiates God's wrath concerning our sins. Propitiation is a, is, is a big fancy word that we almost never use, um, but it's a very important word. To, to propitiate is to appease. It, it, is to, it is to satisfy. And if we're going to understand the love of God for sinners, we've got to understand this. We've got to understand that God needed to be appeased. His, his anger needed to be propitiated. We've got to come to grips with the anger of God towards sinners. I mean, this is the bad news of Christianity, right? We're, we talk about the good news of Christianity all the time, but there's a reason that there's good news, right? First, there's bad news, and this is it. The bad news of Christianity is that God is angry. Now, when... when when the Bible talks about God's anger towards sin and God's anger towards sinners, it, it, it's, not, it, it's not describing God the way it would describe us if, if, if we were angry, right? It, it's not describing a God who is capricious, who's a hothead, who's just waiting to kind of zap sinners in, in, in his anger. Not at all. When the Bible talks about God's anger towards sinners, it is talking about a settled deeply controlled judicial anger, a judicial wrath towards sin and towards sinners. It's not just that God is against sin, the way some people are against certain kinds of politics, right? No, it's, it's that God hates sin. And, and that hatred of sin is settled. It's not going anywhere. It's, it's deep in his being because God is holy. And it's not just that, that God's anger towards sin is, is an emotional reaction. No, it's, it's a judicial response. It is the measured response. It is the only appropriate response of justice toward you and your sin. That's what the Bible means when the Bible talks about God being angry and God's anger towards sin. Now, it is... This truth, this first truth that God is angry towards sin that makes the gospel such good news. And this is where the love of God changes God. Because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, offered his life as a sacrifice on the cross to pay our debt to justice. And as a result of that, he assuaged God's wrath towards us. This this is what our advocate pleads with the Father concerning our sin. He pleads the merits of his righteous blood shed for us. And when he makes that plea, the Father is satisfied. The, the, The Father's wrath is assuaged. It is appeased. This goes way beyond legal categories to deeply relational categories. Because of Jesus Christ's shed blood, God the Father is no longer angry at his children. He is at peace with them. This is how the love of God changes God, changes his disposition towards us from one of anger to one of peace. And and this, this satisfaction that, that, that Jesus Christ has made, it's, it's not petty. I mean, I think we all know what it's like to have somebody angry at us. And we come along and we try to appease their anger, right? We try to patch things up. We try to, we try to satisfy them. And it's an incredibly frustrating exercise because, frankly, they don't want to be appeased. 
right? They're all worked up in their own personal peak, and they, and they, don't, they don't want us to patch things up. And it's all so very petty. That's not at all what we're talking about here with God. God's anger isn't petty. It is righteous. It is judicial. And the righteous one, the God-man, Jesus Christ, has satisfied it. Now, it would be easy at this moment to think of the gospel as the loving Jesus assuaging the angry father. And so we feel much more comfortable with Jesus and we want to keep our distance from the father because he's, he's the angry one. But that actually would be to miss the point that John is making here in verses one and two. Because it is the father's love that planned this sacrifice. It is the father that offered the son as the atoning sacrifice to assuage the father's wrath. And it is the son's righteousness and it is the justice of, of the son's life that actually accomplished this appeasement. So when Jesus pleads on our behalf, it isn't so much love pleading with justice, but rather just the opposite. It is justice, the righteousness of Jesus' life, pleading with the love of the father for our release. And that is exactly what happens. The love of the Father was at work from before the beginning of the world to plan the perfect righteous sacrifice to assuage his own wrath towards his children. That his heart could be turned from, from a disposition of judgment and anger to a disposition of love and peace towards his children. A Christian, if you're here this morning and, and you are a Christian, you need to deep drinkly at this. You need to drink deeply at this well. This, this, is, this is the gospel. This is the beauty of the gospel. We do not have to plead our own case with the Father. We, we don't represent ourselves before God. Jesus does. He represents us. He is our court-appointed defender, as it were. And the defense that he has for you is airtight because the father, the judge himself, planned it. And the son executed it perfectly. The thing is, I think many of us as Christians, we spend a lot of our time living as if God is still angry at us. We still live so often we, we so often relate to God as if, you know, God is angry at me and I got to patch things up. I, I got to fix my relationship with him. I need to have longer quiet times. You know, I, 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 need, to, I need to come to church more often or I, I need to feel different when I do come to church and then God won't be angry at me anymore. Christian, if you're tempted to live that way, that there's something that you've got to do to assuage God's anger, then consider what you're really doing. You are doubting God's love. You're doubting God's love for you, a love which planned your defense from before the beginning of time. And you're doubting Christ's righteousness, as if his righteousness was not sufficient to assuage God's wrath toward you. Christian, if you want to no, if you want to feel, if you want to experience more of, of this truth that, that God is not angry at you, that God loves you, then what you need, I would suggest, is, is not more emotions and not different experiences. What you need is better theology. You need to understand this truth about who God is and what he has done for you. You need better thoughts of the triune God whose love has saved you from your sins. And it is that truth about God, it is that theology that is gonna then lead, I would suggest, to more profound feelings in your own life of just how much God loves you. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, John has something to say to you as well. 
Jesus is not only the sacrifice for our sins, but as you see there in verse two, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Now, that does not mean that everyone is going to be saved. Uh, That that wouldn't even make sense in the terms of John's own letter, and we, we assume that he remembers what he wrote just a few verses before this, right? The point of John's letter is to make clear the difference between authentic Christians, those who are going to be saved, and inauthentic Christians, those who have believed in a lie. It also doesn't mean that Jesus has made salvation a potential or a possibility for everyone that we somehow come along later and then complete. There's nothing potential about what Jesus has done here. Jesus, according to John, has not maybe, possibly, hopefully assuaged God's wrath. No, Jesus has actually assuaged God's wrath towards the world. Full stop. The work is done. So to understand what John is saying here, what we really need to understand is what does he mean when he uses the word world? How is he using the word world here? Now, throughout John's gospel and throughout his letters, the main way that John uses the word world is to mean humanity in its rebellion against God, humanity outside the promises of God. In that sense, in many ways, the word world for John functions the same way that the word Gentiles does in Paul's writing. That, that, that mass of humanity that stands outside God's covenant people, the Jews, up, apart from his promises. And John's point here is that Jesus is the Savior, the one who assuages God's wrath, not just for, for the Jews, like John. John was a Jew. And, and in contrast to the false teachers, not just for the super spiritual people that don't sin anymore, because that's what they were claiming, No, according to John, Jesus is the Savior and the only Savior for the whole world. He has assuaged God's wrath for all people without distinction. Not for all people without exception. He has assuaged God's wrath for all people without distinction. So no no matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, religious or non-religious, male or female, black or white, Hispanic or Asian, pretty good or pretty bad, rich, poor, young, old, educated, uneducated, whoever you are, without distinction, Jesus is sufficient. Because Jesus and Jesus alone has assuaged God's wrath, and he has done it for you personally, if you will repent of your sins and put your faith in him. God saves us from our sin through Jesus Christ, and love has done it. The love of God has changed God through the gospel from a heart that is angry towards my sin personally to a heart that is at peace with me because Jesus has paid the price for me. This passage is actually about the fact that people who have been forgiven by Jesus look like Jesus. So that leads us to the second step in in John's argument here. It's not just that the love of God changes God in the gospel, in his disposition towards us. No, the love of God also changes us. So look at verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, the love of God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. You see what happens here in John's argument. If Jesus has has saved us this completely, if Jesus has assuaged God's wrath 
towards sinners, then we want to know that we know him. We want to be certain that we are inside that salvation and not outside of it. For John, to know God is not to know facts about God. It's not to have a passing acquaintance with God. It's not to have an on-again, off-again relationship with God. For John, to know God, to, to, to have come to know him, as he says there in verse 3, it, it is to have a personal intimacy with God. It, it's to be in God. It's to live in his life. That's one of the phrases he's going to use. It is to walk in his light, an, another phrase that he uses. And John's clear on, on where certainty about this comes from. It comes from obedience. John refers to obedience to God's commands there in verse 3 and again in verse 4. And then he talks about obedience to his word there in verse 5. But he means the same thing every time he says it. Not merely obeying a specific set of rules like the Ten Commandments, but submission to the whole counsel of God, God's revealed will for our lives, especially as it comes to us through Jesus Christ. It's this kind of obedience that lets us know for certain that we have come to know, that we are, we are in an intimate relationship with the Father. So why does obedience assure us of intimacy? Isn't the whole point of the gospel, which I just explained, that God loves us despite our disobedience? Well, the answer is yes. That is the point of the gospel. The gospel does tell us that God loves us despite our disobedience. But the question John is answering here, beginning in verse 3, is not the question, does God love us? The question he's addressing is, how do we know that we love God? Do you see that? He's not asking and answering the question, does God love us? He's asking and answering the question, do we love God? And how would we know? And that question is not answered despite our obedience. That question is answered through our obedience. I think when John says this here in verses 3 and, and, and 4, I, I think he has in mind Jesus' own words from John chapter 14, verse 15, where Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Now, so often we read Jesus' own words and, and we read it wrong. We, we read him saying, if you obey my commands, I'll love you. That is not what he says. He says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So do you want assurance that you really, truly know God and love him? If you do, then stop asking the question, does Jesus love me despite what I do? The cross has already answered that question. It has settled that question in full. Instead, you need to ask the more pertinent question, do I really love Jesus? And then answer it by looking at your life. It's not despite, it's through what you do that gives you the answer to that question. So if you're here this morning and, and you understand yourself to be a believer, you, you just, I think, need to ask yourself the question, does obedience play any role in your Christian life? Does obedience play a role in your Christian life? If not, if, if, uh, if, if you're so concerned always to, to just think about grace, I'm not going to talk about obedience. I'm not going to think about living the Christian life. I'm just going to think about grace and how much I've been forgiven. Th then the question that John asked, the question that I've got to ask is, how do you know that you love him? How do you know that you love Jesus? I wonder what would need to change in your life even starting today for obedience to begin to play a role in, in what it means to be a Christian, to, of, of living out the Christian life. Perhaps what needs to change is before you worry about what you do, perhaps what needs to change is, is what you love. And 
the, the focus, the, the, the kind of the heart of your love is what needs to be addressed first. You know, to drive this point home, John, John gives us another false claim, and then he rebuts that false claim, uh, beginning there in, uh, r- really in verse 4. He says, the man who claims to know God but doesn't obey him is a liar. Once again, and we looked at this last week, John doesn't mean that a single act of sin means you don't love God. When John talks about about the man who who does not obey him, that does not obey his commands, John John is thinking about a lifestyle of sin, an ongoing, characteristic lifestyle of sin that gives lie to your claim to know God. And, And the reason, John says, is that God's love is made complete in the person whose life is characterized by obedience. Verse 5, if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. Now, now that phrase, God's love, if you're using an NIV, uh, that that phrase, uh, God's love, is literally love of God. That's why the second time I read it, I read it not God's love, but love of God. Because you go back and you look at the Greek, that's actually the phrase. They, They didn't have an apostrophe S in Greek. So to to say God's love, you had to say love of God. But the funny thing is, Greek works like English. Love of God could refer to God's love, apostrophe S. But it could also refer to our love of God. Does that follow? Some of you will have a footnote in your Bibles, and it'll, it'll suggest that perhaps this God's love could be translated love for God. And the reality is, it, context is what has to tell us which way to take it. Do we take it as an apostrophe S, God's love, or do we take it as our love of God? And I think when we consider the context, that's what John's talking about here. Not God's love of us, but our love of God. So if you've got an NIV, I would tell you, take your pen and just scratch out the little God's love and and instead in the margin write love of God instead. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because love has a purpose. Love has an end. The the, the verb that John uses here in in verse 5 is is this idea that that, that the love of God is made complete. It's, It's fulfilled. It's brought to its proper end. So what's the purpose? What's the end of love? Well, isn't it to bring the lover and the beloved into intimacy with one another? Into a kind of mutual delight with one another? If God is light and there is no darkness in him at all, and that's the way John started this letter, then friends, True love of God, love for God, cannot be reduced to mere words or mere feelings. Love of God, love for God, must move us into his light. It must express itself in obedience to his will. Because the goal of love is intimacy with God. Love of God, that is love for God, is completed. It it reaches its end in obedience. Love of God changes us because it moves us toward God who is light. Now, it works in the other direction as well. God's love for us has the same goal, the same end, that we would be holy as he is holy so that we can be in an intimate relationship with him. And so God's love does far more than just make us feel good. God's love at work in us, God's love for us at work in us actually makes us be good just as he is good. Because his love for us and our love responding to his are are both working for for the same goal, the same end. And that is intimacy together in the light. We, we know that this is the way love works, right? I, w- I was thinking about this as I, as I had to walk to church like most of you all this morning. 
And so I had a lot of time to think. And, uh, and I was just thinking about this in my own relationship with my wife, and she's not in here, so I can talk more freely about this. But I, I remember um, my friends commenting on how much I changed once we started dating. And I remember how much her friends commented on how she changed after we started dating. And not all of our friends liked this. Some of her friends in particular were offended by how much Adrian changed because she started dating me. And of course, uh, before long, we, we got married. But this is what love does, doesn't it? It, it changes us. It moves us toward the beloved because we want to be intimate with the beloved. God's love for us changes us, but our love of God changes us too. It moves us toward God. Its goal is to be completed in obedience to God's will and therefore intimacy with him in his light. Now, we get this wrong all the time. We want to reduce our love of God to mere sentiment, to mere emotion. And we want to make God's love for us unconditional, not only in its cause, but in its end. But in both cases, we're, we're, we're wrong. Because love has this purpose, this, this end. God does set his love on us unconditionally. There's nothing about us that causes him to love us in the first place. But having set his love on us, he loves us with a purpose. That, that love is pushing us towards the goal, the completion, and that is to make us holy. And as our love responds to his love, we love him back with a purpose as well. Not just with emotions and sentiment, but with obedience the obedience of our lives, because we want intimacy with him just as much as he is pursuing intimacy with us. John really sums it all up, and this is where we conclude in verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. People who've been forgiven by Jesus look like Jesus. They walk like Jesus. They, they, they live like Jesus, not perfectly, but increasingly. And love is what does it. His love for us, laying down his life as a sacrifice for us, and our love for him, moving us to live lives of obedience. There simply is no way to have assurance that we love God and know him apart from obedience. Anything less is just words. And, and honestly, they're lying words. And if you're a parent... You understand this. And if you're a child, you understand this. And so I think I just covered everybody, right? How do we ask our children to show their love for us as parents? How do we, even as adults, show our love toward our parents? Is it just words? Even words of affection? Is it just hugs and kisses? I mean, hugs and kisses are wonderful. But if they are not accompanied by obedience and respect, aren't they just hollow and empty, maybe even worse? You know, it's not that as parents we insist on perfect obedience to be sure of a child's love. Our children disobey us all the time, and sometimes we even deserve it. God never deserves our disobedience. Sometimes we even deserve our kids' disobedience. And that's not, the, that's not the point. Acts of disobedience do not falsify our children's love for us. But acts of disobedience don't prove their love for us either. If assurance is what we want, then obedience is what we need. And that's all the more true of God. If we would know that we love him, if we would know that we have come to know him, then love changes us. It moves us to obey him. I think here is one of the most important functions of the church. 
It's why it's worth it gathering even on a snowy day like today. We can lose perspective on our own lives. It is so easy to lose perspective on our lives. It's so easy to get down into the weeds of my life and all I see is sin. Or it's quite easy to become quite deceived about my life and not really see sin at all. Either way, this is where I need you. I need you and you need each other. Because it's in a church that that I'm a part of, that I'm a member of, that I'm committed to, where I'm known, not where I just show up sometimes and I'm anonymous and I slip in and out, but in a community of people where I'm deeply known, that others can look at my life and say, brother, you remind me of Jesus. I don't know if you see that right now, but I want you to know all the different ways that I see the grace of God at work in your life. Or you can come to me and say, brother, you're not looking much like Jesus right now. Were you you aware of that? And I might realize, no, I, I, I wasn't, and I need to be. It works in both ways. As we speak to other, not, not speak to each other, not, not judgmentally, not self-righteously, but helpfully. Because we're convinced that people who have been truly forgiven by Jesus increasingly look like Jesus. This is what love does. His initiating love for us, our answering love for him, love changes us. Like an old married couple, we begin to look like him. Like a fanatic, we begin to be marked by his colors, conformed to his image. And the result is that as we increasingly see him in us, we know that we have come to know him. Who do you love? Who do you look like? Let's pray. Father, we are astounded at your love that would go to such incredible lengths to bring us into a relationship with you. Father, we pray that we would be also concerned about our own love and the quality of that love as it responds to your transforming grace. Lord, let us be a people who love not just with words, but whose love for you displays itself in a life of humble obedience. Oh, that that we have come to know you in your love. Oh, that we may in turn respond in a love that is born of you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.